Jesus would tell you I'm a whole different man than I was while I was progressing with MS. Uh, some of the ones in the audience saw me jump up on the stage like this about nearly a year ago. Mm-hmm. And two years ago, I couldn't have sat down and crawled up on this stage, much less jumped. So, you know, and it's it's about patient access and and making sure they get what they pay for. Mm-hmm. And when we say they get what they pay for, we're talking about, and of course, um, you're representing the company that uh, where this treatment was done uh, in Sugarland. Uh, talk about, I mean, the cost is what twenty-five to thirty thousand um, dollars. What do they get for that? Well, first, first, let me say mm-hmm. that uh, we are actually a laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Representative Hardcastle and other patients, they have to work with their doctor, and their doctor decides their um, form of treatment. So, if a doctor believes that stem cell therapy, particularly the type of stem cell we um, work with in our laboratories called mesenchymal stem cells, if they believe that that is going to be effective for their patient, mm-hmm. then uh, they essentially um, notify our lab. They identify um, uh, you know, the number of cells, so to speak, for the, for the patient. You asked, what does a patient get? Yeah. Um, the cell count that we call it is directly tied to efficacy, so that kind of determination of... of uh, working with the doctor and deciding how much they need is an extremely important part of this. And um, then what happens is um, the patient would go to um, a surgeon uh, of their choice and have a um, small amount of fat removed. That's then sent to our lab. And using the technology um, that we've, uh, we've developed with our partner is that we can separate from that small amount of fat the patient's own mesenchymal stem cells and then create duplicate copies of it. Mm -hmm. And it takes time. Um, The cells grow at a a natural rate, so to speak, you can think of it. And then coordinating with a physician is then, you know, get the patient um, scheduled so then the cells, when they're ready, can be returned to the physician's office and then the physician... um, uh, gives them to the patient. Mm-hmm. So that's what they get. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a misconception that you would, as you said, you're dealing with your doctor. It's like you drive down to Sugarland and you go right into Celtex and get your cells switched out and you're good to go. Right? Not like that. Doesn't it's, not work like a, like that. it's not like a movie, right? Nope, so, doesn't work like that. I hope, hope we're setting the stage about right here now. Uh, Professor Turner, you have some questions about what they do at Celtex. You've raised some concerns? Um, I've raised some concerns, yeah. Um, do you mind if I take a step back from cell text for just a minute? Or yeah. I, I mean, I understand your question. I'm going to mind it, but, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that when we're talking about stem cell policy in Texas and is it good for Texan, there's, there's multiple policies in play. And it's, it's, uh, it's important to keep in mind there's, kind of, there's different frameworks that we can talk about here today. And I've been very focused on cell text, but in a sense, when it comes to public conversation, I think there's much more going on in Texas than just cell text. Um, in terms of policies... There's a uh, representative Hardcastle has, has pushed forward uh, uh, policies concerning uh, adult autologous stem cell banks, and so that's we could talk about just that. There's the Texas Medical Board and uh, their investigational agent policy. David, I think, is all encouraging us to think much more broadly in terms of um, not just not just sort of mundane level of policy, but kind of a vision for stem cells and stem cell research in Texas. And I think we can think about that as a policy. Mm-hmm. And then I would also say Texas has a problem. Um, and what I mean by that is it's like Florida, California, Arizona, in that there seem to be a number of clinics in Texas that are already administering stem cells to customers, patients, 
Um, in so, some instances, they may be in compliance with state and federal law. In other instances, I would say available evidence indicates that they're not in compliance. Um, I ended up, um, before coming here, I, I just checked to see how many, how many clinics are there in Texas where you can obtain stem cell procedures, mm-hmm. and I ended up finding um, 20, and then three, three what I would call stem cell banks that have relationships with clinics. Uh, and that's the part that, that, to me, it's that last category uh, that I think is, in many ways, most worrisome. So some of you, if you, if you may have noticed, uh, the, the Houston office um, here in Texas, the FBI, the FBI uh, just, noticed, just issued an announcement that uh, two individuals in Texas uh, pleaded guilty because they were involved in unlawful administration of stem cells. And that's, that, to me, is especially the category that, that it's not the only policy, but it's where Texans and other individuals are most vulnerable. Well, so you would say, then, so, that what we've heard in various news reports about stem yeah. cell tourism, is that going on? In Texas? Well, there's, there's it's kind of a dual phenomenon taking place. So there, there's, there are examples of Texans crossing the border into Mexico, for example, or going to other countries and getting access to stem cell procedures. There's also, uh, some people have gone online on YouTube, and, and uh, there's a Texan uh, who passed away after having stem cell procedure in Mexico, and some friends of his made a video. And there's, there's other examples of people who have not just gone for procedures, but been harmed as a result. There's also... Uh, I mean, what I think is, is kind of the more recent dimension to all this is that Texas itself, it's not just a matter of Texans going abroad, but there are clinics here in Texas that, so that local individuals can go there, mm-hmm. and then presumably people from elsewhere, too, other, other states in the, in the U.S. Yeah. And so, Representative Harcastle, that's exactly what you're trying to keep from happening is that sort of stem cell tourism, right? And, and you uh, mentioned before that you didn't want to have to go out of the country to do this. You'd like to be able to do it right I've, here. I've investigated all the clinics out of the country, off, some on the continent, some off the continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is absolutely no reason why we can't do this here. The FBI, the two men he's talking about with the FBI, were involved in the clinic in Mexico and selling stuff across the state lines, uh, which brings a whole de- another picture to the, the realm of things. Policy-wise... Our, our whole goal was to make sure that didn't happen in Texas. I don't care if you're a back institute stem cell lab or if you're Celtex or if you're MD Anderson doing cancer research, which does a lot of stem cell research, or Scott and White, which has a whole building for nothing but stem cell mm-hmm. research. We want to make sure that the efficacy is, has some line there and somewhere we go from there so that we don't get into a Mexico problem. Yeah, and what's your confidence that that isn't happening to a large extent right now? Do we know that? No, I'm very confident that it's not happening. Uh, every lab that I know of and every doctor that's used them that I know of in Texas, and I don't nearly know all of them, but you know, they're concerned with the same efficacy that I am. Uh, I know doctors that are using this extensively in spine and neck surgeries and going to foreign countries to get their stem cells because they have efficacy laws on how they produce the stem cells or what kind they use. Uh, By the same token, I know a lot of people that went out of the country to have a treatment and didn't know whether whether they were getting umbilical cord stem cells or their own stem cells. They didn't know what they were getting. Yeah. But they were that desperate for some kind of treatment. Well, and because this is, you know, as you have mentioned before, 
pioneering. We're in a different, uh, we're in a new place, right, with a lot of this technology, a lot of what's being done. Um, what does the what does Celtex do? What does the industry do as a whole to try to police itself a little bit on some of this stuff? Make sure that if people have those concerns, that it's not happening. It's important to understand that st the phrase stem cells has become kind of a buzzword. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, you'll see uh, nanotechnology as another one. So people throw phrases into their websites, into their advertising, what have you. And there's a wide variety of technology that actually is related to stem cells. And what's key for regulators and FDA, Texas, um, whoever, is to really look at the product, really look at what is going on in each individual circumstance. Um, so as an industry, uh, we have regulations that are um, directly applicable to us, and uh, like any other type of industry, um, you know, we, we follow those. So it's, it's the nature of being in the medical products industry that you're highly regulated, so. Yeah, and David, you know, I mean, your group works with a lot of people, you hear from a lot of people who, um, you know, are looking for sort of an avenue uh, toward hope, right, when they've got, you know, people who have you know, suffered uh, in various ways. Um, what are those families' concerns, though, about the safety and the legitimacy about how the business is run. Well, you know, we get emails and phone calls on a regular basis from people saying, my son was uh, paralyzed in a car wreck six months ago. Should he go pay $25,000 to uh, come to Houston and get uh, stem cell therapy? And I just, I just say, you know, you really need to uh, ask questions. Have they been part of a clinical trial? Are there any, is there any data showing what has happened to the people before that may have had a clinical trial for whatever disease it is? And what were the results? And so I just, you know, I talk to a lot of smart people on a regular basis, and they just say be very careful and uh, make sure that you know what you're getting into and that it works. And so we're all for helping people. We want these people that are in wheelchairs to walk again. We want the blind to see again. We just want it to protect the safety of the citizens first. Well, Professor Turner, you mentioned um, this idea that uh, Texas, and stop me if you've heard this one, Texas versus Washington, um, that, uh, that, that Texas sort of, thank you, that Texas sort of um, is in a way kind of flying in the face of the FDA a little bit uh, when it, when it uh, goes ahead with a policy like this um, that maybe lets some of these companies get away with things that may be FDA violations, at least that's the way you see it. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, that's a point that I tried to make. I mean, when I wrote a letter to the FDA about Celtex, that was basically my concern. So, and I would say... Again, just to step back for one second before going directly to your question, I mean, there are many companies in Texas, there are many researchers in Texas who, who wouldn't frame it in polar terms. Mm -hmm. So they're not thinking, I'm going to do it the Texas way, I'm not doing it the federal way. They're submitting investigational new drug applications to the FDA. They're, they're developing clinical trials, phase one, phase two. There's a lot of important, meaningful research in the area of stem cells here in Texas. When it comes to cell techs, I mean, just to be specific about that, the reason I wrote to the FDA uh, is that this looks to me like a clear example of a company that isn't in compliance with federal law. And I'm sure Andrea will want to rebut that. But the reason I'm saying that is that there's kind of two pathways when it comes to regulating stem cells in the United States uh, when it comes to, to federal, federal law, federal regulations. Uh, there's one category where you don't need to submit an investigational new drug application to the FDA. You don't need to bring a drug to market. The other category is one where you do. And so you need to submit an IND application to the FDA. And it's, you're basically on the pathway of bringing a biological drug to market. Everything I've seen in the public realm, everything, all the evidence that I can find, indicates that what Celtex is doing is they're involved in more of the minimal manipulation of stem cells. 
they're also, so they're expanding stem mesenchymal or mesenchymal stem cells. They're processing them. It's taking place over the course of weeks in their, in their laboratory setting. Um, they're also involved in, in what's called non, non-homologous. So the clinics involved with them are involved in non-homologous administration. So you've got stem cells coming from fat tissue from, from the abdomen. They're being processed in a lab setting. Then they're being administered to people for, for a variety of purposes. So giving them people with MS, for example, Parkinson's. And I'm, I'm sure you can add to that list. But that's the category where once you make a decision to go down that road, while it's more costly, while it's more labor-intensive, that's the investigational new drug, biological license application, new drug application pathway. Well, you can try setting it up. Let sorry? me get to respond to that. <laughs> oh, hey, 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 I'm good at this. You'll get to, you'll get to now, finish that thought. And sure. Okay. Well, the last thing is, I mean, uh, you know, of course this is going to be a strong point, you know, point counterpoint, but I would also say that when it came to the FDA, do sending inspectors to the Celtex manufacturing facility. I mean, they characterized it as a biological drug manufacturing facility. They went through the process that takes place. And so to me, you know, that's, that's a part of a more complicated story because there is certainly more than, than just an inspection of the site. And I mm-hmm. imagine Celtex is having back and forth right now with the FDA. But I would say, you know, seeing that on that form is an indication that, at least at present, that's how the FDA sees what Celtex is doing. Now, to me, there's no way that Celtex should be releasing stem cells to clinics when they're not doing proper phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, demonstrating safety, demonstrating efficacy, going the IND FDA route. It's dangerous. All right, let me have you respond to that. Go ahead. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start with the letter. So the letter uh, was frankly shocking. There's a lot of um, allegations in there based on a, frankly, misinterpretation of the law. So, um, you know, what I like to call internet facts in the, in the letter, um, it's just simply not the case. So let's go then forward in time to the 483 and understanding um, how FDA regulates stem cells. Mm-hmm. There's actually multiple categories that FDA um, can identify as applicable to stem cells. So Lee identified two. There's actually more than that. Um, and two key factors that he pointed out, the minimally manipulated and homologous use, let's look at those for a minute. So uh, what we do is no more than minimally manipulated. It's a tongue twister for you. Um, <laughs> um, because the FDA defines it as um, has the uh, significant biological characteristics of the, of the cells. Have they changed through your process? It's actually the legal definition of that term. Mm-hmm. So what we have very carefully shown, in fact, this has been published in peer-reviewed literature, stem cells and development, is that the exact process that we use, here are the biological characteristics of mesenchymal stem cells, here's the process, we establish what are the characteristics at the beginning of the process, what are the characteristics at the end, we meet that definition of mesenchymal stem cells, uh, retaining their biological characteristics. So that was one point that he made. The next point that he made was this idea of homologous use, and he talked about patients with different diseases and how a physician determines if mesenchymal stem cell therapy might be applicable to them. That's the the physician's job. Now, homologous use, I feel like I'm doing a food and drug law 101 class. (laughs) (laughs) So homologous use is also defined by the law. Homologous use says 
when the cells go back into the person, do they perform the same basic function? That's the beauty of regenerative medicine. So we, we send back to the physician that person's exact stem cells. They get put back into the patient, and it's their body deciding what to do with that. It's a tool that all of us have. We all have mesenchymal stem cells. All of us have this ability to essentially kind of heal yourself at the most basic level. Um, and they are throughout your body. Uh, we take it from fat because that's easily accessible for most people. Um, but you literally have mesenchymal stem cells everywhere. So it does meet the homologous use definition. We are appropriately regulated by the FDA. Uh -huh. And so let's talk about that 483 because people get very excited about the 483. Um, back in April, we had two FDA, come in, two FDA inspectors come and visit us. And this is normal. The FDA inspectors come to any regulated entity. We are an FDA registered establishment. And that's part of their job. So they stayed with us for two weeks. They looked at literally everything that we do. And, we, and we've talked about this in a press release. Um, our laboratory, uh, we have a contract manufacturer, which uh -huh. is a, the company from Korea that we license the technology from. And um, they literally saw everything. And we continue operations. Now, one of the things that they saw is uh, that, that cells go to physicians. Um, and in the end, the last day, the inspectors give you a 43 that lists, they put in the box of what type of establishment it is, this biological drug manufacturer. Well, that is not an official position of the agency. That is a kind of exit interview that the inspectors do. So, of course, yes, we talk to the agency. We have regular conversations with them. We are a regulated entity. Um, they will inspect us again. That's the nature of doing business as a medical product company. Um, and we've shown them through dialogues, through materials, um, that we are fall into the category, it's called an HCTP, but it is this category that says, because you're giving a person back their exact cells, that you don't have to go through a pre-approval process. You're still lawful, your, your product is legal, but you don't go through a pre-approval process. So um, it's, that's a lot of information to throw at people, um, but Lee brought up a well, lot of things Well, but it's all on Twitter address. right now. <laughs> it's yeah. all on Twitter. Can I ask a question that's directly on point? So. Sure. Uh -huh. So, I mean, you mentioned that article, Stem Cells Development, and I, I brought that with me today. Um, I mean, and what I find so interesting, I was sitting out in the lobby beforehand, and I mean, it, the interesting thing about this article is your partners are in Albio. Uh, doing research in South Korea. They have the same basic regulatory framework as exists here in the United States. They did submit an investigational new drug application to the, to, the, to the Korean Food and Drug Administration. So they actually did go through that pathway. So do you have an investigational new drug application that you've submitted to the FDA? Okay, so the, you said that they have the same basic regulatory framework. They actually don't. They do have a Korean yeah. FDA, but by law in yeah. Korea, yeah. stem cells are drugs. That their, their legislature passed that as a matter of law. We have a much more diversified system in our regulatory categories. Um, they do not have the equivalent of an HCTP. And you can go into the HCTP regulations, and it's specifically in the regulations, talks about stem cells. Yeah. It actually yeah. is very similar. Um, 
And one of the things they point out is that um, they did submit an investigational new drug application to do their research. That's exactly what RNL Bio and Celtex needs to do here in the United States. They also point out that the manufacturing facility they use conforms to current good manufacturing practices, which is what your lab is supposed to do. And that's that 483 that you see from, from the FDA, that's not a normal response when, when FDA comes in. I mean, that's the Keystone Cops version of running a stem cell facility. Okay, that's actually, we've talked about it's a, it's a long <laughs> list of problems. And Scott, I'd like to go list. back to the Texas it includes, All right, all right, let's go back to that, but well, sure. that he just at, called us the Keystone Cops. I get to talk well, about it that. Does, <laughs> the, list, the list includes right, things like, hang on, it includes products that aren't supposed to go into sure, humans. I got you. One second, yeah, go sure. ahead. Okay, so uh, we actually put this in a press release, mm-hmm. too. Um, I've already mentioned that RNL is our contract manufacturer. So uh, their people uh, who run our facility all read, write, and speak Korean. So we literally do follow the GTP. We do ensure that our products are viable, intact. They maintain their integrity as stem cells. The issue when you have an auditor, uh, any kind of audit, is that um, it's kind of the, if it's not documented, you know, I haven't seen it kind of a thing. So they saw everything. We have stacks of SOPs. They were all in Korean. All the records that the technicians write are in Korean because it's a Korean staff. Mm-hmm. Now, we worked with them during the two weeks they were there and translated as much as we could. And we also provided all of this material to professional independent translation service they translated everything. We literally provide everything to FDA. I mean, we continue operating it. It's, it's actually just simply not the case. Yeah, well, and you know, all of the language that's used, I mean, some of it, I only speak English, so some of it sounds like Korean to me, so I get a little bit lost. But, you know, you mentioned that, you know, here in Texas, we have our policy, and when people hear all this back and forth, um, they may think, well, okay, well, then what are the folks closest to home doing to make sure these questions are, are, are addressed? Well, and... and our goal from the start, and, and the regulating agencies in Texas, you know, we have a record, a track record here. Mm-hmm. The first stem cells ever used were bone marrow transplants for leukemia patients. Very few people realize that's a stem cell. We now do that transplant in Texas, and Medicaid pays for it if it's umbilical cord stem cells instead of bone marrow. A whole lot easier to match then bone marrow, you know, you can go on the bone marrow donor list and be on there forever and never get a call. Uh, but you can match an umbilical cord, and we actually have a cord blood lab in Texas. Following these same regulations, we're watching companies like Celtex and other companies and going forward with the same type of regulation to make sure the patients getting what they're paying for, and the doctor and the patient have the right to make that decision. Well, and this is also difficult because, and um, you know, David, you and I have talked about this too, um, the idea that uh, somebody might have an experience with this where they feel like, as the representative said, it felt like a miracle happened, and then others would say, well, I felt like nothing happened. And you would also say that that's just the case. There's no guarantee. Our legal system in Texas covers that. Mm -hmm. And all of the people that are doing any kind of stem cell treatment, you see that in writing, in a release, before you ever sign up for treatment. doesn't matter if it's cancer treatment, uh, investigational treatment on on Parkinson's, or uh, an MS treatment in Houston. Mm -hmm. 
because all of it is some degree of your chance of it working on you compared to it not working on somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, when we look at something that is uh, so new, uh, a lot of the questions, and then there's the back and forth, and like you said, you know, stuff comes off of blogs, and you know, there are things that you'll look at and say, okay, well, it's legitimate stuff that I'm looking at, and it, you know, um, it can get very emotional, very heated. I was warned that would happen. Um, but, 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 no. but no, well, yeah. goes to territory. Um, but the pushback on it, um, you know, people in Texas um, want this. They're paying money for it, um, and they do get to sign that that says, look, no guarantee here. Um, is that not fair with any procedure, especially one that is so new? Well, in a sense, I mean, it's in a broad sense, everyone wants what's on offer here, which is effective treatments for MS and Parkinson's disease. I mean, we probably all have a family member or a friend who falls in that category. It's a question of how you get there. It's a question of what's taking place. Um, you know, I worry about exploitation of, of uh, hope and, and desperation. In terms, of, in terms of should we just let people make their own choices, no, I think it's, it's a, that's a dangerous thing. And what I mean by that is that um, there needs to be some protective mechanisms in place so that people aren't exposed to the most vulnerable kinds, you know, the sort of the most exploitative forms of medicine. Um, so I would say, you know, there's a lot of questions that I think can be fairly asked of Celtex. Again, the good thing about the, the FDA 483 is that you know, you've kind of got the Celtex PR machine making various claims about what they're doing, and then there's a critic like me coming in from outside Texas offering a, you know, a strong form kind of criticism. The good thing about this, the 483 is that there's at least something out there that's not from either of us, and you can take a look at it and try and come to some of your own conclusions. And I would say one of the things in that document, I mean, it points out really elementary problems with that manufacturing process. So, for example, this is coming to your, to your point. I mean, the question is, what is it that people are consenting to? What is it that they're being told? So I would say if they're not being told, for example, um, that, that uh, I mean, again, to go back to the inspection report, one simple thing is part of the, part of the manufacturing process uh, involves uh, a reagent or supply, and this is, this is how it's characterized, for research use only, caution, not intended for human or animal diagnostic or therapeutic uses. Now, is that something, is, has every person who's, who's obtained stem cells manufactured the Celtex facility, do they all consent to, to having as part of that process a reagent or supply that in fact is not for use in humans or animals? Did they, were they told that? Was that one of the risks that's disclosed? Do people know what they're getting into when they sign that form? And, and I guess, um, you know, I, I think it's a fair point to say that when somebody is going through something that's terrible, they, there is, in, in a lot of cases, a sense of desperation. So they may just say, yeah, this is it, and they don't really look through all that, and they sign it. But then that's on them, right? Patients have rights. So certainly, yes, uh, you know, if they uh, have decided that they are, are, want this therapy, they have, the, they have the right to do that, so long as it does not contravene any law. Um, to go back to the point about the 483, it is very important to understand that when uh, you know, various reagent suppliers send their material, they may include a statement like that. It's a kind of a disclaimer that they put in. This is well understood. And what you do is you establish by working either with that manufacturer or you work with uh, independent contractors that can establish that that reagent is in fact appropriate for the use that you have. So yes, we have ensured that all of those things listed in the 483 are appropriate for use. 
Um, it's, it can be done either working with the supplier or it can mm -hmm. be working with someone else. Reading a document without context, without understanding the law, without understanding the facts, it's subject to misinterpretation. And if you're so focused on one particular document, you're missing the complexity of food and drug law. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and I want to go back to his first statement about reaching out for hope. <clears throat> And I'm going to calm down and say this very calmly because I promised I wasn't going to get in a fight with Lee while we were sitting up here. But we do that with cancer drugs too. The same year I was diagnosed with cancer, that little pen right there, you only get from MD Anderson Hospital if a child dies taking cancer treatment. And I never signed any release. I never saw any release that said they were going to give her poison. I wanted whatever they could give her to try to keep her alive. And so you're, you're talking several different arguments here, you know, because we, we all go for the best we can get of what we think will work and what our doctor thinks will work. And on the regulation side... We do a good job of regulating doctors in Texas. We now do a good job of regulating labs in Texas to where they can't sell me something that's not there. I actually get to see it. I actually get to see the tracking code where it came from me to start with. You know, I, I actually get to warm it up myself after it comes out of the cryogenic freezer and put it in my body. And what's different with that treatment and me going in and having my blood cleansed with dialysis and putting it back in my body. So, I'm just going to say I chose to sit in the middle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, um, I promise I'm not going to fight with sure, you. Sure, but you hear these emotional arguments. Mm -hmm. I mean, people will say, yeah, he's a sick kid, or you've got, you know, a, you, know you're, you are suffering from mm -hmm. an illness. Give me whatever it's going to take because, mm -hmm. I'm, because they want to get past it. They want to be better. Mm -hmm. What do you tell them? Uh, I agree, but I, what, I'm, what I would argue is give them, give them in an appropriately designed uh, you know, clinical trial context. Don't charge them for something that hasn't been established. So don't charge them $25,000. Don't charge them $30,000. Develop a, a carefully designed clinical trial. Start at phase one. Try and deal with dose and toxicity. Go from there to phase two. And also start doing things like, like create appropriate scientific mechanisms. You know, create blinding, for example, so that so, so the people who have financial benefits if something is actually made available you know, don't actually know who's getting what. That's kind of a classic component of designing a clinical trial. Randomize people to different branches. So, I mean, this whole notion of trying to promote access, sure, I support that. It's an important thing. I think that's what David, David here is trying to promote. It's a question of how that's done. Right now, there are no effective stem cell interventions on the market in the United States or in any other country for MS or Parkinson's disease. So, so when someone is charged $25,000, $30,000 for a, a therapy or an intervention, it's not something that's been established in any kind of meaningful, credible sort of way. The company that Celtex partners with, RNL Bio, is a, it's a very controversial, very worrisome com company. There have been, uh, they've had clients, patients who reportedly have died after receiving stem cell infusions. Now, the mere fact that when someone is seriously ill, dies after receiving stem cells. I mean, in fact, again, that's when you need to have an appropriate environment in which it's being assessed. You need a kind of clinical trial environment. 
Again, I would say for any of you who are following this conversation, do your own homework. Take a close look at RNL Bio. I think the idea of having companies in Texas looking elsewhere around the world for partners, trying to develop innovative therapies, is a good thing. I'm actually very surprised that an American company would partner with RNL Bio because of its past practices and its past controversies, where many of the stem cell infusions and injections they've given to people haven't been in the context of any sort of meaningful clinical trial. So part of this conversation is, is a question about type of access. And I would say we're not at the point where anyone should feel entitled to charge $25,000, $30,000 for access to an intervention where safety and efficacy hasn't yet been established. If Celtex or any other company wants to begin running you know, phase one clinical trials, first trying to establish safety, moving on, moving on from there to efficacy, not charging people along the way, especially not charging them if they're going to get placebos as part of the process, uh, and being very frank in terms of you know, being, being forthright about the informed consent process, having it appropriately reviewed, IRB and FDA, that strikes me as, as the framework that, that companies, universities, research institutes in Texas ought to be going. Well, uh, now, I, well, one, talk one, about well, doing your research, though. I want to answer one sure. of his uh, statements because yeah. you talk about doing your research. The guy died at RNL Bio before I had my treatment, and that was put out to water way before I had my treatment a year ago, that it wasn't an effect of the stem cells that caused him to die. But one of the individuals involved in that review process, I mean, it was by an organization that doesn't have any kind of official credit. No, credit by the Korean investigations. There's been multiple investigations. One of the individuals involved was Glenn McGee, a former Celtex vice president. Again, it doesn't mean that, it, that he's, he's wrong, but it does raise these kinds of conflict of interest questions about, you know, is that the most independent analysis of what occurred? And again, I would say, if you want to do an effective job of figuring out what happened with that RNL bio client, I mean, this is Celtex's you know, parent organization. They have claimed to have treated over 15,000 individuals mm -hmm. now. And yet, when well, you look at their clinical studies, it's less than 100 individuals. Now, if they had actually had all 15,000 people in clinical trials in the published peer-reviewed data, well, we could look and see, so in phase one, what happened? In phase two, what happened? In phase three, RNL bio, as I recall, hasn't, doesn't have any phase three clinical trials. But if all of that was there, where you could see safety well-established, evidence of benefit, efficacy established, and some harm, I mean, that would be useful information when you're not doing it in a clinical trial context, when it's not being published, it's very difficult to know what kind of conclusions to make because most of it's not, it's not meaningful research. To going back to your point about you know, sort of drawing on stuff in the public domain, I would encourage you and your colleagues at Celtex to put as much as possible about your practices. Put it on the internet. All right, well, well, okay, well, I want you to address that. I do also say, um, show of hands, how many people are going to have questions? Um, all right, start making your way to the microphone. We'll get to you uh, in just a moment here, but, but go ahead. A lot, lot there about your company. Yeah, there sure is. Um, where to start? Yeah. So, you talk really fastly, and you throw out actually a lot of mm -hmm. false information, frankly. I understand your concerns, I do, mm -hmm. but uh, I guess to, to frame it up, what, I mean, just, just to the point of, um, because all the, the blizzard of words, and I do that too sometimes, but, 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 the, but all of the words add up to it sounds like uh, it feels like we're just moving way too fast on this, and people are making money on something that we don't know uh, is proven. Okay, right? let's get so, to that. There are literally decades of research on mesenchymal stem cells and what they do in your body. They literally decades of research on this. And you, you said that RNL has not done research. RNL has not done clinical trials. That's not the case they either. They have done some, no question. They, they've done many, as a matter of fact. Now, regardless of the purpose of the clinical trials, whether it's RNL, whether it's some academic institution, 
it is well established what mesenchymal stem cells do in your body. So there is no question that what we are providing to physicians that, that choose to use it in therapy with their patients, that we know what the body is going to do with it. All right. Yes, sir. I don't follow this particular controversy, uh, but listening to you all, I have a simple suggestion. Uh, it seems to me that um, if you're not going through full FDA testing for safety and efficacy, um, maybe you should, Celtex and the physician who's involved, should only get paid if they work. What would you say about that? Well, um, that's an interesting concept for any kind of medical therapy, <laughs> frankly. I mean, you know, the logic would apply to anyone. Um, as far as whether there is safety and efficacy, there certainly is literally decades of data out there. It's it is very expensive to run a clean room. So in a sense that you are selling a product and a physician has decided that he wants to coordinate that with you, you're providing that to the physician. Yes, sir. Larry King from Houston. Uh, MD Anderson just announced a moonshot, $5 billion cancer research. Any uh, guesses or ideas as to how much of that might go into stem cell research? Anybody want to try that? Yeah. I've you know, they're doing as much or more stem cell research as anybody in the state. Uh, a part of a layman's argument, and I won't get scientific, but a part of a layman's argument against being stuck in research is we had the best ever breast cancer trials at MD Anderson two years ago, and they're still stuck in research. And, you know, anything that you have an 80% success rate with, there ought to be a way to speed it up, getting it out to the real people. So I don't know how many total dollars out of that will go in in stem cell research, but I know the whole 14th floor of MD Anderson Hospital is a stem cell lab and a cord blood bank because they are... Sure. Well, I'd like to... Uh, I've been talking to some of these, our medical advisory committee members, which are constitute some of the leaders in the state. Dr. James Willerson, head of the Texas Heart Institute, Darwin Prokop, head of A&M's Regenerative Medicine Program. And one thing that they've discussed, and we're going to put out a white paper at our symposium, this is a shameless plug, October 19th at the state capitol, we're going to have some of the leading doctors and physicians in the state talking about the latest um, research that they're doing. But maybe change the dynamic, the paradigm, the way clinical trials are done. So instead of Dr. Willerson and Celtex going and doing a clinical trial for heart, Dr. Prokop and Incel doing one for cornea, and then 18 months later coming out and said, this is what we found. What if you had 10 clinical trials that were all interrelated? And the word that we're kind of using is um, uh, transparency, co collaborative transparency. So in real time, if something's working in Dr. Prokop's lab that's not working in Dr. Willerson's, maybe they can change in midstream, and that may be a way to expedite the uh, clinical trials. And in that situation, instead of having the placebo-type trials that you're used to in drugs, why don't we just change the amount of dosage? So in Willerson's trial, they may get $20 million. In Prokop's, they get $50 million. So it may be a way for the smart guys to spend more time talking to each other and maybe the people that are sick, and there's over 1.2 million Texans living with a chronic disease or illness, Maybe we can get those people help quicker. Anybody else want to try that one? <clears throat> Take that. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, my name is Bob Kafka. I'm with the Disability Rights Group, ADAPT, and not dead yet. Um, just one thing I just want to caution in terms of unintended consequences, in terms of even some of the terminology, suffering, you know, you're going to cure it. Many people don't wake up every morning saying, oh, my God, are you going to cure me? You know, there's a big debate in the disability community about cure versus care. And again, and no one's against STEM, STEM research. That's, uh, you know, a given. Many people, you know, want it to go forward. But again, you really almost set a, such a negative, inferior thing about a person with a disability. You know, somebody with MS. I'm, like I said, I've been spinal cord injury for 39 years. I mean, if there was a stem cell that would, you know, make, uh, you know, a person without a disability, I'd probably say yes. But again, I do not appreciate being called suffering. You set a tone of inferiority that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And let me just give you an example. Um, I used to be the president of the Texas Paralyzed Veterans, and a gentleman, Kent Waltrip from North Texas, went to Russia for some uh, steroid-type you know, cure. And all of a sudden, I started to get all these phone calls from people I had never heard from. And literally, they were sitting at home waiting for the cure, not doing anything in their lives. We're not talking about folks that could not be productive in the community, but that you know, hope that you talk about. And again, so it's really in, to realize that this is a growing number of people. The vast majority, yes, you know, would say, please cure me, make me better. But again, there's a large number of people born with disabilities, traumatic disabilities like myself, that really, you know, wants themselves to go forward, but don't want to be talked about you know, totally in medical terms. Because that's what happened. It's the doctors talking about us sort of in medical and almost like we don't do, do anything but just live with our disabilities and not participating. So it's really a, a plea to include, as legislation goes forward, you know, individuals, that, that perspective. Because a lot of times it's usually seen not so much as disability rights, it's usually seen in a religious context of people that you know, don't like stem cells. And it, you know, it happens in so many areas that it's not just religious zealots uh -huh. in terms of that, but also the disability rights com community. So it's just sort of a question about how you can include that, but also just a, a, a caution. Thank you. All right, thank, uh, thank you for that, and we appreciate your perspective on that. Representative, I mean, when you do go forward with, well, when the legislature would go forward with uh, anything on this, um, is that a uh, is that something that's considered? I mean, you know, in your situation, you say miraculous. He's somebody who says, well, you know, maybe that's not quite the right tone to use when we talk about people who have disabilities. Well, no, I, I had I, I grinned while he was talking. I was not laughing at you. I was grinning because before the U.S. Congress Health and Human Services Committee, they uh, asked me in the middle of my testimony if I represented a disabled community. And, you know, I'd walked in there on my own. I did have to lean on the podium a little bit because I used to shake. And so I understand what you're talking about. I, the legislation, as I see it, the issue changes every time the legislature meets in Texas. Because 10 years ago when I was diagnosed, our big debate was over 
uh, embryonic versus adult versus umbilical cord. Yeah. Uh, the big debate right now is over, okay, we're going forward with all this, and, and similar to what David said, I've heard so many things going good, you know, cancer-wise or whatever with stem cells from different Texas hospitals or, or Johns Hopkins or whomever. And the question then becomes, are we protecting the citizens, you know, and... We think that we've got the policy in place in Texas to protect citizens. Will that change? Every two years. <laughs> I would guarantee it will change every two years because we'll find something new uh, that needs to be looked after. And But coming from a state that doesn't want to be an over-regulator and doesn't want to be a burden, and, you know, our attorney general's in a wheelchair from back injury. And, you know, he wants to see this go forward just as much as anybody else does. Today, it doesn't have anything to do with his condition, you know, because I, I couldn't describe it medically, but it's, you know, a permanent break. Yeah. And, uh, Professor Turner, where is that balance? I mean, you know, David says, let's have a moonshot. The representative says, you know, we're working our way through this. You have, you know, more concerns or more questions. Mm -hmm. Where's the balance? Well, to me, I mean, the best, the best balance is one that, that emphasizes innovation, bringing products to market, bringing effective, safe interventions to patients, um, but does it in a way that it's not rash, it's not hasty, it has appropriate safety mechanisms in place. To me, the, the current existing framework of having uh, both local IRB review and FDA oversight uh, is, is a good and effective way of doing that. If people have criticisms and want to talk about the speed at which the FDA moves, uh, I mean, I think that's a, a worthwhile kind of critique to offer, a worthwhile point to make. Uh, but that kind of critique is very different from trying to go around the FDA. I would respond, I mean, to, to your comment about, about uh, evidence in the public domain. I mean, I've done the best I could to try and, you know, do a lot of research, look with care, uh, not just try and, you know, go off in my own fantasy about the, the 483, but try and read it and, and work within those constraints. But I would say, I mean, if you feel that you're misunderstood, that cell text is misunderstood, or that there's inadequate information in the public domain, I mean, I would encourage your new colleagues to try and correct that by putting as much information in the public realm, shared, accessible as possible. And I'll, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I, mean, I mean, I gather that Celtex feels that local IRB review is adequate. And you've mentioned in one of your letters to me when you were threatening me with a lawsuit uh, that Texas supplied biomedical Again, services. Again, I'm sitting in the middle right here. I know. <laughs> I mean, but but you, mentioned, you mentioned the particular IRB, Texas Supplied Biomedical Services. And I was, I mean, I look at that and I see a website where there's, you know, there's no information, for example, about who, what members are there. And so I would say, I mean, I think it would be helpful for everyone to know Who's serving as reviewers for your studies? If that's the IRB that's reviewing you, I mean, are there clinician investigators reviewing it? Are there suitably trained scientists? Are there health law specialists? And so on. I mean, maybe you could tell us the names of a few right now, but if, if not, uh, why not just put like that, something like that up on your website or put it on the TABS website? I asked, I asked the woman who runs TABS, Joyce Heinrich, um, and she said that you know, her response was that she would review my request, but when it comes to something as simple as IRB members, why not just put it up there? Why hide it? Why not be just frank and forthright? We use these terms like, like hide it. I mean, as far as the, the question about whether or not people really know what's going on and, and trying to figure out you know, whether information that is um, deemed worthy of being public is being made public, what would you say about that? Well, 
Celtex is a pioneer. I mean, we are really on the forefront of regenerative medicine and the laboratory services that we provide. So certainly, critics want to know everything about us. Critics want to evaluate you know, every aspect of what we're doing. And to a certain extent, we're willing to have fair dialogues. Um, but I think that uh, it's... When you ask me, can, can TABS put something on their website, mm -hmm. continue dialogue with TABS. You know, we'll have a dialogue with a, 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 within reasonable parameters. Mm -hmm. But part of the nature we understand of, of being on the forefront, so to speak, mm -hmm. is to face the critics. But there is real potential in supplementing mesenchymal stem cells for a, a variety of, of uses that go to the very nature of mesenchymal stem cells. And for physicians in private practice, in clinics, outside of academia, outside of institutions, to have access to that for their patients where they think it's uh, potentially beneficial, that's a great leap for medical treatment. All right, we have time for one more question. It goes to the editor of the Texas Tribune, Emily Ramshaw. I just have a question for Representative Hardcastle, and that was, um, you know, Rick Perry obviously also had uh, a stem cell treatment right before he went out on the campaign trail. Uh, you appeared to have an, an incredible reaction. Uh, he complained the entire way he was running for president about how bad his back still hurt, about how he wasn't sleeping, which would largely lead me to believe that, that he didn't have the same result that you had. Have the two of you talked at all about your shared experiences? Not more than every other week. Uh, <laughs> You got to understand the difference, Emily. Uh, he had a major back surgery, and he had stem cells to treat it. And again, I'm not going to give this a scientific example. I'm going to give the, the cowboy answer. We had a Navy SEAL who all of us knew that had similar back surgery in January. Rick took off his back brace in July, I believe, or the 1st of August, and went on the campaign trail. That Navy SEAL was still in his back brace when I saw him again in September. You know, you're not talking apples and oranges. Uh, yes, I talk to him fairly regularly. Uh, his, his overall heart test has gotten better. Uh, he's jogging again. You know, his back has gotten better. Did he push it too quick behind the, the major back surgery? to go on the campaign trail? That's a question that a lot of us that know him will ask him from now on. Uh, but I don't think it had anything to do with the stem cells because I think the stem cells did what they were supposed to do to his back and did it efficiently and timely. And, and several of us that are around him a lot saw that and know it. Uh, would we have chosen a different time for him to have had his back fixed? Probably, you know, because timing is everything. Hindsight's twenty twenty. That's right. <laughs> That's Thank right. You. All right, and then with that, we're out of time. Thank you all for coming, and, and a hand for this uh, this panel.